it's not about culture fit. We've been on this kind of trajectory of, are they a culture fit or not? You don't want them to fit in. You want more diverse thought. You want people, part of your company that represent your customer base. You want to make sure that they understand what your values and behaviors are, but that they're complementary or they add to what it is you're already doing. Welcome to the Leading Transformational Change Podcast. Our passion is to help you lead and develop organizations with a remarkably healthy culture that can positively impact all of its stakeholders. Every other Thursday, we drop hour-long conversations with world-leading researchers and experts on culture, ethics, change, and leadership. My name is Tobias Sturluson, and I'm your host and the co-founder of Art Management. If you love practical and actionable conversations, you'll love this episode. As I think many of our regular listeners know, culture and values are central themes in this podcast. And I think many of us have experienced very ineffective culture change and values initiatives that left employees frustrated and that ultimately broke down trust. Yet at the same time, most of us realize the critical importance of being guided by our values and continual reflection on our behaviors and decisions within our organizations. We also recognize that our organizations must continually evolve to achieve mission success, a thriving workplace, and a responsible impact, especially in this time of constant changes and significant pressures. Some of us even face critical culture challenges that we must overcome. So how do we drive change and make values matter? Today, we'll hear from a practitioner who started the first organizational development function at Adobe and built the organizational development and learning function from scratch at Twitter. And this is long before Elon Musk's time. Melissa Daimler is the chief learning officer at Udemy, a leading education technology company. She's the author of Reculturing, Design Your Company Culture to Connect with Strategy and Purpose for Lasting Success. Her work has been featured in Harvest Business Review, Forbes, and many other publications. And she has helped numerous organizations design systems aligned with their values. In our conversation, we get granular on designing your values-based behaviors and integrating them into practices and processes to drive behavioral change at scale. And I'm just hoping that you're going to find it as actionable and practical as I found it. And I felt like I could continue this conversation forever. And I should add to that, that Melissa and I, we've been trying to schedule this conversation for a long, long time. So I was so happy to, that we could finally make it happen. However, before we start the conversation, I wanted to tell you about a free PDF guide that we've developed to help you lead lasting culture change. In our work with numerous organizations, we realize that how organizations typically approach culture change and values integration just doesn't work. That's why we put together a free resource with six vital steps to leading lasting culture change and making values matter. And we've already received so much great feedback on the people who have downloaded it since we launched it just a few weeks ago. 
So go and download your free guide today at heartmanagement.org slash guide. You get your guide at heartmanagement.org slash guide. But now, without further ado, let's jump into my conversation with Melissa Daimler. Melissa, it's such a privilege to have you on the podcast today. It's great to be here. Thanks for your patience. We've been talking about this for a while, so I'm excited to finally get to talk all things culture. Yeah, we actually have. And just before starting this conversation, we started talking about Sweden. And of course, I understand that you have some connections here as well. So that's really cool. Yeah, very small world indeed. It is. So we're going to jump right into it. And I read your book, Reculturing, and, and there were several things there that really just caught my attention. And then working within this space and, and doing this podcast and having a lot of conversations with researchers and experts within the space, of course, you hear a lot of things over and then suddenly there are things that just stand out and you see, okay, here is someone who has thought a little bit differently or a bit deeper around certain topics. So I'm so excited to dig into that. And especially, I think, talking as well about values and their role and how we can go from values that are those beautiful posters on the wall that we all know. Perhaps now we don't necessarily have walls or posters, but at least screensavers or something into something that, that might actually be more in driving how we operate as an organization. So, so, so excited. But so what made you become fascinated with the topics of values and culture? Yeah, well, thanks again for having me on this podcast. I'm always excited to talk about culture. I, I, I think I have been, as I share in my book, I've been doing this for a while. So it's been over 20 years of being on the front lines of driving and being part of culture, both as an employee and as a leader, been in some pretty iconic fast growth companies who were evolving, not just their business, but also, we didn't call it reculturing at the time, but we were evolving our culture as well. And so I was lucky enough to be part of some really great cultures, you know, with Adobe and Twitter. And then of course, you know, I had the, what I call now the opportunity to learn from the not so healthy culture of WeWork. And then now I'm in a company, an ed tech company, Udemy, which also is committed to building uh, a healthy culture. And I experience it daily. So I saw and was part of the culture so much that I craved learning about it. And I read every article, every book out there on culture. And, you know, as well as a lot of things just around transformational change and leading change because culture is really behavior change at scale and kind of left with feeling that there weren't a lot of practitioner focused books out there, books written by people who were experiencing and leading culture. And I also felt that the books on culture were so theoretical because of that. They weren't practical, actionable steps that I could take. And I do believe, and you know, I talk about this again in, in the book, that culture is not a noun, uh, to your point. It's not a set of values on a website or on a wall. It is an active set of behaviors that we are doing every day by design or by default. And so my passion in this is that you know, we might as well design this, you know, because again, it's happening all the time. So 
I was really committed to writing something that the, you know, practitioners and leaders in the world could take as their own playbook, if you will, and, you know, kind of update, you know, a more modern way of thinking about culture based on what I and so many other people had experienced. I love that, Melissa. That's so helpful. And just loved what you said, that culture is behavioral change at scale. And for all our listeners, just uh, that that's the tweet right there or, or an X or whatever you call it now. That's a fantastic quote. And of course, that's so, so incredibly true. And I think for all of our listeners at different points within their organizational journey, they're going to see the need of that. But I think so many times an, an issue here and something we talk a lot about uh, is the idea that we kind of end up in the like bad apple theory in the sense that we think when we see issues, when we see behaviors that we think are not, that, that are hindering or unhealthy, we think it's, oh, it's these people who are behaving in this way. And we don't really lift our eyes to see the patterns and to see that culture is co-created and see that there's the, the scale aspect of this. Could you say anything into that or other things that you have felt? Okay, these are things that we just might misunderstand when it comes uh, to how culture practically works within our organizations. Sure. As you said, I, one of the myths is that culture is static and that it's more of a noun than a verb. I, you know, it is an active set of behaviors. And I love that you emphasize the co-creation because I think another myth that's out there is this idea that, you know, culture starts and ends at the top. And I do believe that culture has to start, maybe not start even, but be reinforced at the top. But where it lives, I always say, is in the middle. I, I think that, you know, are those frontline managers, employees every day are re-emphasizing and reinforcing those behaviors that we said are really important to how we work at the company. You know, there's a couple of pieces here. So I always say that culture is really three things. It's the behaviors that we've talked about, closely tied to values, and then it's processes. So those are all things that we're doing anyway. It's not additional processes. It's the people processes of hiring, onboarding, developing, giving feedback, performance. All of those processes need to have those behaviors embedded in them so that they can more easily be reinforced. I talk about practices, which are those kind of daily behaviors that we do. So you and I talking like this, how we communicate, you know, what decisions we're making, how we're meeting, how we're connecting, all of those are an opportunity to strengthen or weaken culture. So, you know, I'll give you an example. You know, we have in our company right now a value of always learning. One of the behaviors of always learning is we engage in constructive debate because we realize that to really learn with each other, we needed some productive friction, as we call it. We needed to kind of make sure that we were getting everybody's point of view so that we could really learn in a holistic way. I think then from my perspective as a leader, I try to make sure in team meetings, we just had one yesterday, that there is constructive debate that happens, that we actively practice and look for ways to maybe see a different side that we're all not seeing or give somebody a voice that, you know, maybe 
you know, we didn't acknowledge as much before we came to a decision. And so just a, you know, small example, but I think on a daily basis, that's what I mean with the practices that you have an opportunity to kind of reinforce those ways of working that you said were really important to building culture. And so I think, you know, there's a lot of easy ways to do that. Beautiful, beautiful, so helpful. And we didn't necessarily plan for this, but I, w- I would just love to, as we kind of go through this conversation, because I think for our listeners that they will really appreciate to make it as just as practical as possible. And I, I know that's what you do in your book and in your work. So you might even throw out some case studies or, or just the idea of, okay, so how do we apply this when we want to change culture? But I'll quote for your, from your book, you write that the companies that work to connect their values-based behaviors, processes and practices to each other, and then to the larger organizational systems are the ones that have healthy culture and successful business outcomes. And of course, you started talking about behavior and could you talk a bit about for an organization that if we would say they they have these like you know the these three nice sounding words or whatever as their values and they realize okay this is not really helpful and we need to get more clear because in in, in my perspective what i mean defining behaviors or whatever just defining it on itself is not changing anything but what it can do is help us create some clarity and as a kind of starting point to say, okay, what should we then be doing? What should we be in re- reinforcing? What should we be encouraging or not allowing? But when you think about getting clear on those behaviors, yeah, what does that look like and what is important to think about? I've thought a lot about this and, you know, writing a book forces you to think about it even more specifically. So when I think about behaviors specifically, there are some criteria that we use and I have used in the past that makes those behaviors much stickier, if you will. And so one of the things that I always encourage people to do is, you know, when you're thinking about behaviors, is it observable? Like, would I be able to see you doing this? You know, so going back to the example I just gave, would I be able to see you debating somebody constructively? Different than the next piece of criteria is, and I learned this from my data analytics team years ago at Twitter, but, you know, is it single barreled versus double barreled? So you, so it's hard to have a behavior where you say, we engage in constructive debate in a very clear and concise way such that everybody is empowered. Well, there's like five things in there that you said were important. So, you know, when it comes down to giving you feedback on how well you exemplify that behavior, it's going to be hard for me to do that because it's, am I giving you feedback on how effective you were in communicating that debate? Am I giving you feedback on how constructive it was? Am I giving you feedback on, you know, how, how clear you were? So I just, it's really important to have very simple and single barreled behaviors that you could observe. The other things that I talk about are, you know, make sure that it's inclusive and that you're thinking globally about the wording. There was a point in time at one of the companies I I was working with where we were trying to define behaviors and one of them said, why can't we just say, you know, you know, don't sweat the small stuff or, you know, another idiom I think they used a lot was put yourself in somebody else's shoes 
And when we shared this with our employees in Tokyo, Japan, you know, they had a ton of questions. They had no idea what we were talking about. What do you mean? That doesn't have any meaning for us. And so we tend to use idioms or metaphors sometimes, you know, hustle harder, you know, whatever it is, but it just, that's not effective when it comes to defining behaviors for especially a global company who wants some consistency and how organizational culture is exemplified. So the other couple pieces to think about are, you know, I always want it to be put in the positive, you know, so again, I'm in Silicon Valley in San Francisco and we tend to, you know, try to get really cute with some of our, you know, the wording that we use, like, don't be a jerk or some other phrases that we won't say here, but it's always better to start with what you want versus what you don't want, you know, so keep it in the positive. And then the constructive debate that I often have with colleagues is, should these behaviors and values be aspirational or should they be, should they represent what you're doing today? And I do think it's a mix of both. I, I, I think that they obviously have to be things that we have control over. So, you know, constructively debating, I can do that today. And I also think there's some aspirational aspects that should be included. So behaviorally, so, you know, we have, you know, in our company right now, we have work to do around being clear about roles when we have kind of major projects that we're pulling in together. So we have a behavior around collaboration and clarity in those roles. Can't remember exactly how it's worded, but, you know, if you ask any one of our employees today, are we doing that consistently? They would say no, but do we see signs? For sure we do. So those are just some things to think about when it comes to defining your behaviors. That's super, super helpful, Melissa. And and so I'm thinking about like values and behaviors in this way that we can never kind of define something that will be the kind of entirety of saying, kind of giving us all the answers of how we should behave, but that our values and behaviors should help us have great kind of robust conversations about our priorities and our behaviors and kind of lead us to ask critical questions. And I'm just thinking when you think about that at Udemy, for example, like how many behaviors have you identified? Of course, there's no size fits all, but what is a good amount that you found that, okay, this is still something that is easier for or easy for us, as you say, kind of, for example, frontline or middle managers to follow up for employees to reflect on their behavior? Yes, for sure. So when I first got inspired about the idea of culture being much more active and part of the strategy and purpose of a company, it was Netflix. So years ago, many of your listeners, and and you probably know the culture deck that they're famous for. If you just Google culture deck, you'll see it. You know, and and Patty, who who had run Talent There, I got to interview her for my book as well. But they started identifying what that what it would look like, you know. So if we were behaving in a way consistent with what we expect, these are the behaviors. But they had, I think, at the time, I want to say like twenty different behaviors. And I looked today, and I think they have over fifty. That's too many, in my opinion. I mean, you're spending more time 
trying to remember them than trying to actually leverage them in your day to day. So my rule used to be, you know, we have 12 at Udemy, but if you can get it down under 10, I, I, I think that's the magic number. Because again, you want enough so that, you know, we you can leverage them for the different, you know, hiring processes and feedback, as I said. And when looking at promotions, you're definitely, you want a robust set of behaviors, but you don't want so many that some just are not as relevant as others because you're just, you're just not going to use that many. Really, really, really helpful. And in terms of like you talked about this constructive debate as a behavior at, at Udemy, and then you said that we want to ensure that it's like single barreled, that we're not trying to kind of say five different things in the same sentence or in the same behavior. But so when you think about constructive debate and you think about then the aspect of, let's say, having 10 behaviors, I guess, how do you then get clear on what constructive debate should look like? Is there something you do in terms of then clarifying that because you then don't want to do too much in one sentence? Yeah, it's a really good question. I actually, you know, and I'm thinking about the next book might be and just, you know, having also a, a lot of passion around learning. You know, I would say that learning and culture are really the the areas of focus for me and my and have been throughout my entire career. We have taken our behaviors and we're going to take it even further this year into skills. So, I think the onus is on companies to make sure to your really great point and question when you roll out behaviors, is everybody really clear first about what that looks like? You know, what does that mean? And then two, does everybody know how to do it? You know, so if we look at our company right now, and it's such a good example, no, we're not good at constructive debate. You know, so we're very, we're a very nice culture. And, you know, we conflate and have conflated debate with being mean. And so we've been on this journey in this last year to roll out, you know, learning paths and courses and workshops. We have it in our manager development experience on how to debate. What questions do you ask? How do you make sure that as a leader, you're providing the, the safe space for constructive debate to happen? What does that look like? You know, what are those specific questions that you need to ask? in a constructive way that would allow for basic debate to happen between your employees. And so I, I do think that beyond just defining that behavior, you're ideally integrating those behaviors into development opportunities and really defining skills that you'd want to encourage and keep developing to be more effective in exemplifying that culture. Super helpful. If we think about constructive debate, what are some skills that it will be really helpful for our, our listeners to just get kind of granular on this? And because I know that around this, there are so many questions and, and I think you've really shown an, a great path on how to think about these things. So could you give some example of a skill that you're thinking about in terms of constructive debate? Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll talk about a skill, but I'll also talk, I mean, I think the other piece here too is, you know, tools and resources. So you know, we're rolling out a, you know, there's a lot of decision making frameworks out there or roles and responsibilities, matrices. 
And part of the issue that, you know, we're realizing is being clear on who the decision maker is and what the roles and responsibilities are for major projects is part of the foundation for any good kind of collaboration. And then once you have that and you have that clarity, you can have much more constructive debate within that context. So part of what we're doing and have been doing is rolling out a decision-making framework. It's called DACI. It doesn't matter what one you use. People use RACI. There's a lot of different ones out there. But that's the first thing. And then some of the skills that we're specifically calling out are around, you know, we have a list of questions. So what are some good questions that you can ask each other? And, you know, in meetings, for example, like one of the questions is, you know, can you tell me more? A list of questions is a good thing when you're trying to debate. I think listening is another aspect of this. So we talk a lot about the skill of active listening, you know, really, again, inquiring into, instead of getting into a defensive posture, you know, first understanding what is the point that person is trying to make and what specifically about that point do I disagree with or do I have question about? So we try to make sure people understand how to take a very general concept, you know, instead of just saying, I disagree with what you said, to I understand X and Y, what I'm still not completely understanding or I'm clear about is Z. Can you give me more details about that specifically? So those are some of the skills that we practice in some of our our workshops around constructive debate. So they come out of that feeling like I have more skills that then can back into the behaviors that we want to reinforce that then make it you know, much easier for us to kind of reinforce the culture that we want to keep building. Super, super helpful. And so as we're talking about this, something that I think about is that the issues around how culture has been approached in many organizations is that it's basically and relegated in a sense to the HR function, maybe some part of it to the ethics and compliance function. I guess more and more organizations are realizing that's not necessarily working that well. And we do this, I would say, quite short-sighted initiatives that become more of a marketing campaign, perhaps, but not really changing the way we're operating as an organization. And of course, there are other aspects of what you're talking about here, which is regards to our, our processes and practices. And But there's just one aspect out of this that I think is so important. It is that when it comes to behaviors, that it's not just a list that kind of the HR function or some employees have come up and think, okay, these are nice things we think that we want to have or be as an organization, but that it actually, if we actually want to do that behavioral change, and now I'm just, now I'm just saying from my perspective, and I would love for, for to hear your thoughts on this. If we want to see this behavioral change at scale, we need to actually commit to it from the top level in the organization and also be willing to do the work needed to perhaps, like you said, okay, we don't really have clarity on our around our rules. And like, for example, we say, we should collaborate. Let's say, I mean, that's a very big behavior, but let's say something around collaboration. Do we have the structures for that? Do we have the process for that? Do we have the tools for that? And do we have the commitment then to say, okay, we're actually going to 
do the work needed, not just to sit in groups and talk about these behaviors, which might be relevant and valuable, but actually to come behind it so that people within the organization will feel that, yeah, that behavior is actually really something that we want to see in this organization. And I see it through all the signals that I get. Yes, that's exactly it. I've been reading a lot about Amsterdam and the whole bicycling culture there recently. And I just, it's been such an interesting metaphor when I think about what we're talking about here, because for many years, that wasn't always the case. Amsterdam was very car centric and, you know, they were grappling with accidents and and dealing with a lot of issues there, but they put in, you know, kind of in their whole citywide system paths and, you know, embedded processes, if you will, like they worked a lot with the government and, you know, really talked through what is it going to take for us to kind of shift to this more kind of bicycling culture. And they have practices that they do, like just learning more about it, but like they, there's intersections where there's not, there's only lights for the bikes and they all manage to kind of work within that system there's practices that the bicyclists do with each other. And so, uh, again, it was just an interesting metaphor for me because to me, the processes in an organization are really laying out those bike paths. You know, so it, we want to make it as easy as possible for people to reinforce these behaviors. And so, why not do it within processes that we're already doing? So, you're already hiring, you're already interviewing people. Let's make sure that the questions in that interview process are behavioral questions based on our our values and behaviors. Let's make sure that when we're giving you feedback, when we're giving feedback to each other, when we're looking at promoting you or not, we're really clear in having conversations about the extent to which, you know, at a director level, you are exemplifying the behaviors in ways we would expect from that director level. And so, you know, I think the extent to which you can embed those behaviors into to processes that you're already doing and then, you know, figure out more active ways to, you know, to practice them and skill people up on them daily is the opportunity I think we have in front of us that we don't take advantage of. This is so, so, so important. And I'm getting so excited in this conversation because I just love what you're bringing up here. So if I think like having worked within this space for a number of years, I think in the sense of maturity that I think that more organizations now think about, okay, we need to integrate this in some way in our processes, but that often it it stops kind of with we look at the more kind of people processes in that sense, and which are super important. And, and you've mentioned many of them already now. But I think we, we take our list of values and we and add it kind of to the recruitment ad or something, or we just have it on as a tick the box exercise in an interview or, or kind of that's okay, do you agree with this? But we haven't taken the time. And I looked at some companies, for example, where they've really I mean, been very, very thoughtful in what are the questions we're asking. In my experience, most of the time, it's just an add-on and it's not really something that is truly integrated in our performance reviews or or so on. Can you talk to that and just say, what what are some of the things that you've learned that you think are really important and helpful and tactical in terms of integrating it into important people processes? 
I've been there too. Like I, I have been part of interview panels where, you know, one of the questions was just, do they exemplify the values and behaviors? Well, I don't know which one and what, how would I know? So, or to your point, like in a performance management feedback process, like, you know, did they, there's so much that we talk about with regard to what people are doing and how well they achieved their OKRs or their KPIs or whatever it is. But then we have one question on, do they, are they consistent with the values? Again, I have no idea because that's such a general statement. So being really clear, and it sounds like you have worked with companies that are about what are those questions that would tell us to the extent that a candidate exemplifies those behaviors. The other thing we do specifically in the hiring process is, you know, we also prompt people. So we say things like these are sentiments or, you know, things to listen for. Like, do they give examples of, you know, going back to our constructive debate, like, you know, specifically not just an example of what they debated on, but like, what did they learn from that debate? Or, you know, how do they improve their skill set out of that? So we have sentiments to listen for, sentiments to watch out for. So we have a whole other list of if they say or, or lean toward some of these areas, that might kind of be a signal. It's not a definite, but it's a signal that they may not culturally add or complement to be a compliment to what we already have. The other thing I'm, I have a knit about, and I talk about this in the book, is it's not about culture fit. We've been on this kind of trajectory of are they a culture fit or not? And I think especially with all the work we're trying to do around DEI and inclusivity and making sure that we have diverse perspectives in our organization, you don't want them to fit in. You want more diverse thought. You want people part of your company that represent your customer base. You want to make sure that they understand what your values and behaviors are, but that they're complementary or they add to what it is you're already doing or thinking differently about how we can kind of exemplify these values and behaviors. So I I think it's really important to distinguish that it's not about more people fitting into what you already have. Because again, as an organization, you're ideally continuing to grow and evolve. And so you want to have people that will push you to grow and evolve in upwards and and to the right in ways that maybe you haven't even thought of yet. Really insightful and thinking about this culture fit as well, that a part of the issue as well been the idea that more when we look for culture fits, that we've not actually been very clear on what our values truly are, but becomes, is this the person that I would like to go and grab a beer with? That that's kind of more becomes the question of, of like, is this someone that I want to hang out with after work? And which has led us down the entirely wrong track instead of thinking about, for example, if we say that constructive debate is important for us, how do we then express that so that we can express that in a way where people with different experiences and different perspectives will feel at home within an atmosphere of constructive debate and and feel that they are able to contribute to the debate as well. So so it's like, it's it's not that the behavior that we should compromise on it in that sense, but that, or the value, but more that we need to be 
very open to how we approach it and see that, like you're saying, that new people might add new perspectives to that. This isn't about perfection. I mean, this is really about constructively having a conversation about, you know, hey, how could that have been done a little differently? I think it's important that it continues to evolve, that we're not, you know, it's not a static thing. We've even, you know, we've looked at our behaviors of the past year. And as we started hearing more about how people were sharing them, there were some words in our behaviors originally that we just took out because it was just too many. I think even the we engage in constructive debate to make effective decisions. I think that was the original behavior. And we realized that, well, it's really not so much about decisions all the time. It's just making sure that we we debate each other, you know, constructively. So that could be a decision. It could be learning something new. It could be pivoting on a, a direction that we're, we're going in. So I think that's just really important to, to emphasize. If we think about these behaviors as just this nice list that we kind of define on a company event, if we're not really willing to get behind this, if it's not strategically important for us, we're not going to do the work that it takes to actually shift the culture towards constructive debate that doesn't have that in it or where that's not a strong element today. In, in a few days, I'm, I'm speaking two days to two different groups of CFOs in large organizations. And I, I'm so excited about that because I'm like, I, I think that, for example, CFOs are people who are so important at the kind of culture change table and are there because they own incredibly important processes within the organization that I also think shape the behavior and shape the incentives and so on within an organization. Is there something you want to say about that when we kind of go outside of the, what we say, the typical people process that's, that are often owned by the HR function or kind of people function? Is there something you want to say to, to other types of processes that you also have seen are incredibly important in driving the right behavior? I don't think culture is owned by HR. I don't, I mean, people processes, I, I think the framework of them is driven from HR, but the reinforcement and the using those processes is done by everybody. You know, I'll give you another example. You know, we're looking a lot at recognition at our company and looking at spot bonuses and how do we make those decisions. So I'm talking with our CFO about that and we are tying it to our behaviors, you know, how to recognize people based on the behaviors that they're exemplifying. You know, obviously it's other functional and technical behaviors and responsibilities that they do as well. But I think it's important to, to tie it back to behaviors with a lot of different processes across the organization. The other thing I would say is that it is important to reinforce case studies or examples or stories that people are doing, ideally, to your point, outside of HR. As you know, we just had a, our CFO had an all hands uh, a few months ago. And one of the things they do in their all hands is they do recognize a team or an individual for being one of our values is courageously experimental. There are behaviors inside of, of that value. And they'll pick, you know, a value or behavior each month to highlight, you know, how that was exemplified with one of their team members. So 
there's nothing quite like, and you said this at the very beginning, highlighting examples or real use cases, you know, on the ground of how this behavior showed up and what kind of great outcome it led to. So I can't emphasize enough of the importance that, you know, beyond the people leader to ensure every leader across the organization and manager is able to reinforce and provide examples of what good behaviors look like across the organization. Beautiful. And I, I think that ties into something that that we've seen is so incredibly important. So something we say very, very often is that just like with our physical health, organizational or our cultural health is not built by short-term initiatives, but it's built by our habits. And, and really it's our like habits and practices. And we think that leadership habits are super important, but of course everyone's habits and practices are very important. And practices is the third aspect of culture that you talk about in your, in your book and in, in your work. And yeah, could you talk a little bit about that and what, when we, for example, think about constructive debate or something else, what, how should we think about our practices to make sure that this is something that we're actually living out in our daily work? When I think about practices, I, those are more kind of the day-to-day, I would say, team-oriented aspects of culture, whereas processes are more what I would say kind of the longer-term org-wide pieces, you know, around the hiring and the onboarding and some of the other ones that we talked about. One of the things that I mentioned in the book and that we do on a quarterly basis, we recommend with all teams is to look at your practices as a team. So often teams are changing. Even if one person comes into the team, that is a new team. And so, you know, when I think of practices, I think about meetings, I think about communications like Slack or Teams or whatever you're using. I think about ways that we're connecting virtually and in person. I think about, you know, how we're making decisions, how we're learning together. Those are all kind of habits, to your point, or practices that we need to reinforce. One of the behaviors that we have in our company, one of our values is individually humble, collectively proud, and we have a behavior around really taking time for reflection and before we kind of move to the next thing. And so I was just talking to my team yesterday, how do we kind of embed that practice more into our day-to-day or week-to-week? And One of the things that we came up with, again, these don't have to be, this is not rocket science. We are, we have a practice of Monday of every week. We set out, you know, on Slack to each other. These are our three top areas of focus. Now we just added another practice that's much more reflective. So it exemplifies that behavior where we highlight one win of the week, you know, and we share that on Slack. And so again, not rocket science, not that hard, but it reinforces this conversation we had as a team where it's just relentless. I mean, we are growing fast. We're, you know, it's been a tough macro. It's, we have a ton of stuff to do with not a ton of resources. And sometimes it's just easy to keep going versus kind of pausing and reflecting on, hey, well, what just happened? That, that was a pretty good week. Those are practices. Like, you know, the extent to which you can think about practices into practices that you already are having, you know, so do like Slack or things that you can do in meetings that you're already having or, 
ways of working. You know, the other one that we can, one of our one of our uh, leaders on my team decided to. We have another behavior around, you know, making sure that we make space for everyone's voice to be heard. And again, we don't make space a lot of times for each other. And so she's making space by she's having office hours three times a week now. She runs our leadership and management development, so she's doing a ton. So it's she's just available on Zoom virtually for anybody that wants to pop in on our team who has a question and just making space for questions, ideas, you know, different things. And people love it. Like, you know, people have been coming to her, even if it's for like 10 minutes or five minutes, but it's such a great practice, I think. And, and again, another example of a behavior that we have translated into a practice that's really relevant and useful for the team. And it's gotten us into a place where we're moving faster because, you know, questions get answered, things get clarified, and we go. That's super helpful. And, and Melissa, I, I feel like I could, it, it's evening here, so I feel like I could talk to you, you all night. And I'm just mindful that our, our time is running out and I know you have a tight schedule. Before we end, I really want to know how people can connect with you. I, I just, of course, you mentioned at the start of this conversation that you had a, a stint at WeWork. And I'll, I'm just leaving that as cliffhanger for people that we, we talk a lot about building healthy and, and ethical cultures. And you're writing really, really insightful in your book about some of your learnings and what you learned kind of leads to, to unhealthy cultures. So we leave it as a cliffhanger for people go and get the book and then you can read that story. But now I want to let you go. But before I do that, just want to ask you, Melissa, what are ways that people can connect with you and keep following your work? Sure. Thank you. So the two media, social media platforms that I'm on the most are Instagram. So I'm at M Daimler and then uh, LinkedIn, of course, I, I post a lot there. And then my website, I do have a newsletter that I'm trying to have a consistent cadence around every month. So melissadaimler.com is where you can find me. That's awesome. So make sure to connect with Melissa, make sure again to get her book. And Melissa, thank you so much for this conversation and for the important work you do in the world. We really are so passionate about seeing a world where organizations with a healthy culture become the norm and not the exception. And I'm so grateful that you are working towards that vision where you're based. So so thank you, Melissa. Well, thank you for having me and, and thank you for getting this work out there. And it's just, it's so fun that you're in Malmo, Sweden. And it's exciting for me that my work is impacting people around the world. So thank you. It is, it is. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, it really means the world to us if you would share, rate, and review it on iTunes. We're super grateful for all the five-star reviews and generous comments that we've received so far. It really helps us take the message of purpose and integrity to a wider audience. And finally, don't forget to grab your free PDF on leadingtransformationalchange.com. See you in two weeks.